people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Welcome to Twelve Rules for What. Um, this is a podcast on fascism, anti-fascism, and the far right from the perspective of the left. Uh, I'm Alex, and I'm joined by Sam. And today we're joined by Fawn from the Green Anti-Capitalist Front. Yep. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So the political structure of eco-fascism is basically it's a common combination of like far-right thinking and a kind of scrappy and quite bad science version of environmentalism, in which the environment is taken to be broadly a kind of stable object, which can be uh, thought about as like a single thing that is you know, pure and there's almost kind of religious dimension to it, which is now because of the actions of humans and you know obviously like non-white humans mostly, um, as far as they're concerned has been uh, perverted or destroyed or ruined, that kind of thing. So who holds beliefs like this? Like who practically are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about uh, people like Debbie Dooley, who used to work for the Tea Party and organise for them. Uh, she's very much in the, a lot of these people actually are very much in the stewardship model and also people like Richard Spencer. So he, he basically says, so he says we are a special part of nature, of the natural order being in it and above it. And we're not above it. We very much exist within nature. We are natural things. Um, humans have material needs that need to be met in order to survive. Um, and this weird suggestion from the hierarchical right um, that we're above nature can't sustainably give us the natural world. But what they really want is a prolonged consumption of it for those who they deem worthy, i.e. Uh, people within their nation or people within Europe, um, in a broad sense, or essentially just white people. I think it's worth distinguishing as well eco-fascism from um, an earlier variant, variant of particularly American um, kind of right-wing thinking about the environment, which is the wise use movement, which is basically the idea that uh, the government shouldn't intervene and that people should be allowed to enjoy nature as and when they see fit. But what that means in practice is that people will be able to like drill uh, more or less anywhere and extract um, resources from wetlands which are currently prohibited so it's a kind of a it's much more leaning towards the kind of right libertarianism mm. and doesn't really fall within the kind of purview here but the wise use movement did also um used to use the term eco-fascism to refer to left-wing activists who were trying to prevent them from extracting things from the land and so the term has this really kind of like complicated history mm. one of the reasons why we're talking about it today is because the um christchurch shooter referred to himself in his manifesto as an eco-fascist and to some extent i think there's a possibility that what he's doing there because if you go to the wikipedia article for eco-fascism what you get is like um the kind of they say you know, it's been used as a term to describe some people it doesn't really give you a definition about it it doesn't really regard it as a real thing it just regards it as kind of an allegation and so i think it's possible that the reason why he's used that is because he wants people to go off on a kind of wild goose chase trying to find out what his ideology is but i also think it is a real thing and it is important and we should you know, talk about it as a kind of coherent set of ideas but not regard it as just kind of a left-wing uh, attempt to restrict uh, free market capitalism which is how the wise use movement use it yeah and i think the wise use movement is particularly poignant because it labels sort of leftist movements uh, environmentalist movements as eco-fascist and yet advocates an aggressive expansion of private property rights uh, in order for people to care for the environment but a state is necessary to oversee and enforce private property rights and if you have a very very powerful state with a lot of private property 
in the interests of the environment that immediately is going to become eco-conservatism and then eco-fascism it i the idea that they're labeling other groups as eco-fascist when their ideology has eco-fascism built in it as an end as not even just like a slippery slope fallacy as just the natural end of the expansion of private property rights is wild I feel like I, I mean I I I don't want to defend Ancats, but I feel like they're not fascists. I think the the, the the interesting thing about this like above nature kind of we are there to enjoy it. It's the, nature is there for us to use, mm. or there, there for us to consume. Is that that only in their conception of how that would work? It only works if uh, you either kill a load of people who you don't like in mass genocides to take them out of the planet and to take them off your plate, or if you allow these people. Uh, allow them just to die through the climate change catastrophes that are going to happen in the global south and eventually the global and the expansion north. of border regimes, mm. right? And 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 that kind of that kind of like theory only holds up if you subscribe to this Malthusian kind of conception of why climate change is happening and like humans as as consumptive creatures that are all equally the same amount of consumptiveness, right? And not like there's one subset of people who are doing all the consuming and there's like a vast majority who are doing barely any of it. Spoiler uh, alert here, it's actually white Europeans who are doing most of the consuming. I don't know if anyone's noticed Wait, this. what? No. But also, that, but also that, you know, if we reconstructed our society to uh, look after and meet everybody's needs, then we could support, actually, we could actually support a greater number of people on the planet. I feel like actually, so the so I, I want to kind of differentiate like a kind of again like a right wing version of this from like a fascist version of this. So the the fascists are to some extent, at least in theory, although definitely not in practice, there's a kind of big split in the Nazis, for example, between people who want to like preserve nature in this kind of romanticized Germanic way, like Rudolf Hess, and people who are totally like willing to kind of exploit it for the war effort, which is basically what they do in practice anyway. There is a kind of big split here, but at least in theory. The notion that nature is here for our use, for our extraction, for our, you know, for only an exclusively human pleasure, isn't actually a part of eco-fascism. They are just as critical of the possibility of human use or the notion of nature being exclusively for human use as people from the deep ecology movement, which is why there are subterranean connections, I think, maybe this is going too far, um, some connections between deep ecology and its potential some misanthropy and eco-fascism. And it's not so hard to move from a position where you believe that humans shouldn't be using nature or dominating nature at all to a position where you say, okay, well, we kind of have to, but only for this limited racial group. I think mm -hmm. that's not a hard difference to, a uh, hard kind of path to walk. Um, but I don't think that eco-fascists believe that nature is only there for extraction. I think I would agree with that. It's this idea of stewardship that humans not necessarily the earth is there to serve humans, but humans are on the earth to protect it and make sure it remains pure, uh, which tends to be just a dog whistle for white, <laughs> and um, preserved. And this sort of uh, nature needs to be um, like this, the, the Gaia idea that nature needs to be, uh, we need to return back to this ideal perfect state that nature once was in. And if only we could get back there, and then everything would be fine and everything would be back in harmony, um, which obviously goes hand in hand with normal reactionary politics of saying that there was this other perfect time when all the social relations instead of the environmental relations were perfect and we just need to go back to that time. Um, and it's a little bit too close for comfort. People like um, 
Joe Pierce from the National Front, he uh, described... So in the 1980s, he describes um, three pillars of nationalism as social justice, ecology, and racial purity. Um, he did... <laughs> luckily, he eventually moved towards ethno-pluralism and a very strange esoteric form of almost socialism called distributism. I guess ethno-pluralism uh, ethno is, uh, again, a dog whistle for racial separatism, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um but also, so he initially has these, I mean, he's part of the National Front, so explicitly fascist ideas of um, stewarding the people and stewarding the land and uh, this ecology um, from his point of view, this authoritarian ecology, ecology where we will make sure that the land is fine. And then eventually he renounces his views and instead becomes a Christian. Um, he renounces his racist views, he renounces his fascist views and it's interesting to note how the idea of stewardship remains. There is still the idea that instead of the people uh, or humans rather than the people, but humans um, stewarding the earth to make sure that it's uh, blossoming and flourishing and in its most natural balanced state, and the idea of a god stewarding humans to ensure that social relations are, again, in their most natural flourishing uh, authentic state and that's in the same way that the reactionary politics goes very easily with this um, authoritarian ecology it's the same sort of parallel between those two and that's completely correct, yeah. that's completely correct. So you're part of GAF which is the green anti-capitalist front uh, maybe you could talk about a bit about why GAF was started and what it's trying to do okay so GAF was uh, started as an offshoot of the ecological working group in uh, London Anarchist Federation and it, it sort of was started as uh, an alternative to XR that was explicitly anti-capitalist. And it would take the same aims of preserving the environment and uh, stopping environmental degradation. But note that it's impossible to do that without also critiquing capitalism and understanding how the capitalist mode of production and um, productionism uh, is sort of inherently inefficient and inherently growth oriented and that that on a finite planet is causing a lot of the issues that we're having uh, to do with the environment um, and it allowed us to sort of critique degradation that resulted from imperialism. There's also uh, implicit in your critique of XR something like an implicit critique of like a left accelerationist tendency or something like FALC, something like that, fully automated luxury communism. Yeah. You, what do you think about that? Um, very much there is a, a sort of critique of accelerationist movements um, in that uh, GAF is sort of their job is both to, or its job rather, is to critique the state of things as they are and also begin to build up alternative infrastructure um, to sort of take the reins, I guess, um, where uh, government plans and other sort of philanthropical methods of environmental preservation fail and um it's sort of it it isn't inherently anarchist it started off from the anarchist federation but um a lot of the people are anarchists and sort of would rather um build their own sort of uh non-hierarchical structures rather than rely on concessions from the state in the same way that xr might do and similar uh there are some people uh, sort of within gaff who believe that maybe uh vanguard party and the overthrow of capitalism via some sort of Leninist revolution is the only way to possibly curb this sort of productionism. But that isn't where GAF is focused. It's just 
an anti-capitalist green banner where lots of other groups can come together and talk and uh, communicate and build networks of anti-capitalist structures um, with the interests of the environment at heart. And I guess we're talking about eco-fascism today and you've talked about how like green activism or uh, environmentalism needs to be explicitly anti-capitalist and maybe you could talk about do you think that whether environmentalism needs to be also explicitly anti-fascist as well? Uh, I think you'd be probably hard-pressed to sort of find a anti-capitalist critique, not just an anti-capitalist person, but an, a full holistic anti-capitalist critique that isn't explicitly anti-fascist. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, whereas, for example, a socialist or an anarchist critique of capitalism would also sort of see fascism as capitalism in decay and therefore already be against fascism from that standpoint. And maybe there are other tendencies on the left that might critique capitalism um, as well and not be anti-fascist, but I, I don't... I think the evils of capitalism in its sort of ruthless productionism, in its hierarchical um, sort of forceful oppression, that if that's what you're taking issue with, you inherently also take issue with fascism. Is It's just capitalism with a mysticism applied to it about some sort of we're going to use this labor power to regenerate this great state that we have and if you're against capitalism and all the bullshit that comes with it and all the all the structures and all the oppression that comes with it then the odds of you also buying into some weird sort of fascist way of thinking without being strasserite or something is very unlikely so to pick you up on the kind of strasserism yeah or the possibility of someone being a Strasserite yeah. group or having Strasserite views, um, and that turning into a kind of anti-capitalism that is not actually anti-fascist, but is kind of pro-fascist. Yeah. To some extent, I think the danger of eco-fascism is that some kind of movement like that might arise. So some kind of movement that is able to critique the uh, environmental accelerations and also the massive acceleration of productivity, the massive acceleration of alienation that capitalism brings about, of people from their their worlds, some kind of organisation that is able to do that critique, but offer as a solution an essentially fascist relation to the land, an essentially fascist relation to the nation, the state, etc., whatever you have, that seems to me to be like the real threat of eco-fascism. So I think there are, there are critiques of capitalism from the right. Hmm. I completely agree with you that every fascist group that ever existed actually turns out to be capitalism in any sufficiently... Yeah, abstract view of what capitalism is. I totally agree with you there. But I'm just saying that like, it seems possible that that's the real threat. Ecofascism represents the possibility of being anti-production, of being of going into like degrowth economics or something like that, of being anti-alienation, while at the same time maintaining things like racist difference, national being, or volkish politics, and all these other kind of things that I think are nascent yeah. in what we're seeing in contemporary ecofascism. I think... That's really quite an important point. Um, And it highlights the need for anti-capitalist or groups that like GAF that label themselves as anti-capitalist to very quickly and efficiently root out um, racist tendencies within their movement. Because if movements like GAF, and I think GAF is doing a really good job of this, don't weed out those sorts of people, there is 
very much the probability, the possibility that groups will uh, become Strasserite, will become populist, will critique uh, environmentalism from the right, will critique environmentalism from a liberal standpoint, which will eventually become a right-wing standpoint. Um, and, for example, um, the two two ELF or ALF prisoners um, in the uh, Green Scare in the US. So ELF is a Earth Liberation Front. Yes, uh, and the ALF is the Animal Liberation Front, and both of which are sort of informal groups uh, where people take direct action against people hurting animals or hurting the Earth, and then claim it under the ALF or ELF banner. I think we were talking about about stochastic fascism in the anti-fascist episode we did last time and uh basically what that consisted of kind of raising the general level of consciousness about um i guess in a kind of racist consciousness like raising that level and just waiting for people to randomly uh, commit atrocities and then lay, attach it to a movement in some ways the elf alf are strategies that do basically the same thing for environmentalism to raise level general levels of consciousness not centrally organized but rely on small groups of people to commit quite like disparate but often quite effective actions yeah. um, against uh, polluting or uh, animal abuse targets. So Exile and Sadie were ELF or ALF activists in the US and they carried out a large amount of direct action and strategic attacks against uh, infrastructure and sort of did quite a lot for the environmentalist movement from a cell structure kind of standpoint. Um, and were obviously very talented, committed activists, but their racism wasn't rooted out when they were young, when they were still sort of forming initial affinity groups and really getting into direct action. And they have since adopted the philosophy of Charles Manson instead, and from prison they yes. write to people. Like I said, yikes, because that's yeah. <laughs> pretty mad. So the, the uh, air, trees, water animals i think it's called their philosophy they end all of their letters from prison with atwa which is kind of terrifying because these people are really effective activists and they've now adopted charles manson's philosophy but also exile was running a tumblr blog um which was headed loyalty is more powerful than blood i think or something like that and he was just posting fascist rhetoric on there. It's posting life runes and wolf runes and sort of saying white power symbols and things on there. And these are very, very environmentally committed people who unfortunately were sort of turned in jail against... The, they, they carried that anti-capitalist critique, but it wasn't a thorough anti-capitalist critique. It was just a sort of basic anti-capitalist critique plus the sort of nascent racism of the society that they grew up in in the US. Unfortunately, that that is a genuine example of Strasserism taking, or at least esoteric Nazism taking, sort of committed environmentalists and making them into um, bad people. Anyone posting white power crosses, it should not be admitted into your local anarchist scene. <laughs> Top tips. <laughs> <laughs> You, you talked about um, the importance like rooting out like fascist, racist and fascist thinking. Mm. And you talked about how these people, Exile and the other guy, didn't have this kind of... They, had, they didn't have this full critique. They didn't have this racism like burned out of them as they were younger. How, how would Gaff go about that? Like how, how do you like kind of like develop yourselves? And because it's like there's, there's a few kinds of like attacks that could be made on, on like the... On Gaff as a group and then as activists within that. So you could have the internal attack of like 
developing bad ways of thinking, like racist, fascist ways of thinking, and that expressing itself and not being challenged and developing until you're posting white power shit on Tumblr. God forbid. <laughs> but there is also the other consideration of people coming into the group who are already, you know, already got on that path, already like fairly far down the racist path. Oh, terrible thought. And, um, and and trying to like turn gaff or take people away from gaff who are already activists within it. So there's there's a, there's a there's a few different ways, a few different things that you need to defend against. And I wonder how do you defend that as a group, and how do you kind of like promote a certain kind of like active anti-racism, active anti-fascism within uh, the the environmental and anarchist and radical left scenes in which GAF operates. How do you challenge like these kind of racist patterns of thought within yourselves, and how do you protect yourselves? And like I guess if you're trying to build a movement, right? How do you protect a movement like a not just GAF as a group, but GAF as like a wider kind of... The most effective way, I would imagine, to remove those tendencies uh, of certain people who may wish to join uh, anti-capitalist green movements or any sort of green movement at all um, would be decolonization. And that would be... So as an example statistic, um, I think, according to the New Yorker, like 89% of leadership roles in uh, environmental movements in 2014 were filled by white people. And you can imagine that it's very easy to get through um, rhetoric that is normalized in a very white society that maybe is actually racist or, you know, potentially ableist or any other sort of has any other negative aspect to it. Um, if everyone that you're talking to and everyone in charge of the movements are white and white from probably similar backgrounds, mainly from the US and the UK. Um, so it's very important to make sure that when you do build a movement, you really encourage that that movement isn't specifically led by anyone. I think there's a lot of danger in uh, hierarchical movement building because that gives... You know that's that has all the the normal anarchist critiques of things, but specifically, um, GAF as a front needs to remain a front, and I think other environmental movements would do well to learn from that. That um, you are providing a place for other groups, or groups of individuals, or even just other individuals to come together and discuss and take action for environmental justice, and it's important that you include groups who are usually marginalised, whether that's groups from working class areas, groups from uh, the Global South, like um, the Kurdistan Solidarity Network and Kurdish people in general. Like They they know what they're doing and they have uh, critiques and they are environmentalist and they're saying we, we need to listen to their advice. We can't just stand by and say those, those people are doing a good job. Let's do that over here. And we're going to run it. You have to say, no, th these people are over there doing a good job. And it's important that we take that we ask people from that area to come over and help our movement um, or at least represent their movement within the greater sort of broader front. You seem to be uh, deliberately operating within Extinct Rebellion's like sphere and acting within it whilst having these critiques is that is that something that's that's a consciously adopted tactic or they're using these people on the streets to just demand concessions from the state in certain areas and absolutely inconsequential things like declaring a climate emergency 
Um, and it's all nice and it makes you feel nice that you've been successful, but it's not actually doing anything. So, so I think there is a real space for people to, there's a real need for people to claim that same space and also mobilize and also be on the streets and provide education and provide, um, so activist support um, and provide uh, lectures and living spaces and autonomous zones for people. There's a real need for other movements to seize that same ground and begin to uh, carry out their actions, which are actually revolutionary, like building cooperative um, uh, structures and building uh, solidarity networks and educating people on climate change and anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism um, and how all of these are linked um, on the streets. Uh, but without saying that, and the next thing you need to do is ask Boris Johnson to please be very kind to you. You also need to be a bit more aggressive and a bit more stand your ground than that. You need to be aware that this is a movement that will affect the people. It will affect proletarians first, and it will affect proletarians in the global south first. And appealing to capitalists and the bourgeois class to solve this problem is not how it's going to get solved. So one of the kind of recent upticks, I think, in... The presence of ecofascism or the sense of ecofascism as a real substantial threat has been kind of a list of uh, events that have happened, I think, mostly in the last year. I just want to kind of run through those events and uh, talk a bit about maybe their kind of significance. So Tucker Carlson, who is a Fox News pundit, um, said on his show, which is watched by literally millions of people in America, that the reason why he was had anti-immigration policies and um, some people from, I think, Vox have done a kind of analysis of Tucker Carlson claiming that he's basically a white nationalist. Um, I'm not sure if I entirely agree with that, but I think there's definitely a strong case to be made that Tucker Carlson is a lot more right-wing than most people who even appear on Fox. And Tucker Carlson said that his anti-immigrant policies were actually just a result of his pro-environmental policies, of his love of the environment. Now, that seems like a kind of a, uh, a twist in the in the tale, but I think it's it's worth going back to the foundations of American environmentalism and realizing that they all stay are simultaneous and indeed involve uh, almost the same people as uh, the founding of the eugenics movement. Madison Grant was a um, like an American uh, writer politician uh, who wrote a thing uh, called the Passing of the Great Race in 1916. He also, he's also instrumental in producing one of the first immigration bills, immigration 1924, that restricted immigration on the grounds of race. So it said you could, uh, a certain people, number of, a quota of people from each given race can come to the US based on the 1890 census. The 1890 census is just before there was a change in the dynamics of who uh, was coming. So by so he's like, they're mostly, at that point, they're uh, North Europeans. And he was like, this is good. Um, and so be basically trying to produce a policy that would uh, continually mean that there was a um, the right kind of immigration for him, uh, basically North European immigration uh, into America. But he was also a really prominent environmentalist who believed completely authentically, as much as his politics were disgusting, in the importance of maintaining the natural world of its kind of almost sacredness in his politics. And so a lot of his politics is oriented around that as well. I would say that Madison Grant is the first... And in many ways, kind of the, the really important eco-fascist thinker. So the, the, there's a long-running tendency here of, um, of the, in, particularly in the American context, the combination of environmental politics and fascism, basically, or 
ethno-nationalism. And I wonder what you think is kind of the differences between like an American context of, for this kind of uh, problem in the environmental movement and like a European context. So there are major differences between these two? I think it's an issue of scale um, between the US and I guess quintessentially Britain, but also in the main Europe, uh, like European version of ecology and um, environmentalism. Whereas the US has you know, great reaching plains and mountains and rivers and lakes and these sort of huge, genuinely massive uh, geographical structures where people can gaze out upon them and say, this is my homeland and I am in charge of this mountain or whatever. And me and my family, we are proprietors of this specific creek. Um, in the UK, there isn't enough space to do that. So where is, I think the ambitions are just sort of curtailed a little bit. So. But there is an imaginary of like deep England, right? There, and there is like a kind of a, a sense of the rolling beautiful hills of England and maybe even, you know, the kind of reaches of Scotland and and the strange localities of valleys in Wales. And obviously the kind of, um, in the, particularly in the kind of British colonial imagination, there are like thoughts of the, the deep forests of Ireland. And so I think the, these things kind of do exist. And there's definitely a long standing semi-aristocratic tradition of hatred for you know dark satanic mills. Not that Blake is a fascist, but <laughs> but also you can locate you'd like kind of locate like the American uh, link of the environment to anti-immigration laws brought in. In Britain, it came much later in the in the in the late sixties, early seventies with the Immigration Act, and it was that was less about the environment, more about anxieties about racial makeup of Britain, the collapse of empire, the British Empire. And I'm sure it was part of the part of the like the subtext of that whole thing of like rivers of blood, everything going to shit, was the degradation of the environment and the 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 kind of um, the the racist kind of ways that welfare services are like uh, are, are used as a tool to bash brown people and black people, um, but the link is a bit more tenuous I feel, compared to the American context. Some of the things that happened were Marine Le Pen declared that she was no longer a climate change denier, uh, which I think is just like a marker of how useful this stuff is going to become for French and European nationalisms in the future, yeah, particularly when uh, it's coupled with like, what I think is the real crux here of the racism or the real piece of kind of bad science that gets attached to ecofascism or that spawns ecofascism, which is the theory of overpopulation. So we need to talk about why that's nonsense, why it is that overpopulation is not the main driver of, of climate change, why it is that you know the having lots of people um, doesn't actually make the planet profoundly unsustainable. It's, uh, it's much more to do with the industrialization and that kind of process. And if you have people who are um, not really consuming a huge number of resources because they're in areas that have been impoverished through colonialism, then uh, they're not going to uh, destroy the world by um, doing that. And so I think we need to kind of address that, like that profound fallacy of the equivalence between overpopulation, massive systemic climate change. Okay, so let's say you live in you live in Kent, and God forbid, and you don't exactly experience environmental degradation in your day to day life because it hasn't reached you particularly in Kent yet. Um, your lifestyle being one of the typical global north, so your only exposure to climate change is through. Uh, campaigns so far people saying 
have you noticed littering on your streets? And people say, yeah, yeah. Have you noticed that these great tsunamis have hit places that aren't where you are? And you say, oh, yes, yes, it's awful, it's awful. But you haven't physically been exposed to the effects of climate change as of yet. And you continue to live your lifestyle that's heavily dependent on resource extraction in the global south. You continue to live your lifestyle that's heavily dependent on uh, technology and on large amounts of consumption. And all of a sudden, people start emigrating to your country um, and your population has been mostly homogeneous you've had a couple of people come over from france god forbid uh many many years ago and from you know calais in recent times with syrian refugees but mostly population has been very homogeneous very white and all of a sudden someone comes over from the global south and says uh, my country is being ransacked uh, i am having tornadoes and typhoons and tsunamis and heat waves and my people and my family specifically aren't able to survive anymore and we need a place of refuge and you go well okay that's it's fine you can come in here and you can you know, live with us or at least i would hope that would be the attitude you'd take and slowly the population of your area increases and as the population of your area increases um from these climate refugees and also there at the same time begins to be a need to mine resources and um, carry out things like fracking and drilling for oil um, in the global north now and so you begin to genuinely see firsthand the effects of environmental degradation maybe you've seen a field be used for fracking and uh, you've noticed that it's ruined your lovely um, view that you used to have or you see um, yeah, you see uh, a mine reopened or something uh, and you see all of a sudden both of these people have come over and increased the population of your area and also suddenly they need to take our resources, ignoring the fact that those people in order to live that lifestyle have been taking resources from the global south the whole time. And I think it's at that point very easy to say, wait, it looks like now we have too many people, we have to do extra resource extraction. So what if we reduce the number of people, and given that all the new people are climate refugees, probably non-white people, what if we reduce the number of people, then we wouldn't have to do these awful things to our climate? Because look, now I can no longer gaze out across the, uh, the Lake District and see the same beautiful sort of scene that I'd see I've seen for so many years I think if you don't have the direct connection the day-to-day -day view physically of living in a maybe a poor neighborhood in the US where there's a purification plant or a mining plant and you don't have to deal day-to-day -day with the actual physical effects of colonialism and imperialism and how it's creating the issues of climate change. Your only effect of climate change is too many people coming and all of a sudden, now what, they need our resources as well? Basically, as far as I understand it, there's a, on the far right, there are three different kinds of race. Hmm. Uh, there's uh, racial superiority, which is mostly about uh, white and black. There's um, the fear of uh, indiscriminate um, violence and savagery that's mostly connected to like uh, the spooky threat of like Muslim populations and also uh, like stabbings and stuff yeah and, th and then there's another the third kind of racism which is the weirdest kind and also the uh, the most like, traditional kind of anti-semitism um, which relates to kind of a, a, a vast global power structure kind of manipulating things there's also like different modes to that as well right so yeah there's like, there's like racial superiority um, and then there's also like uh, racial separatism 
which is where I think a lot of the eco-fascist uh, kind of tendency is rooted in that. It's much more like you should stick in your part of the world and we should stick in ours. Right, so it's the th- it's, so I think this is it's broadly the first mode. So it's broadly about supremacy. I think that I think they're, I, literally, like, I think they're literally all connected in this kind of thing. I think um, you have you have a, like very popular conspiracy theories of like migrant caravans being organised and being directed into Europe. You have the the threat of that that goes along. So you have all these like essentially like war migrants now, but in t- in twenty years they're going to be climate migrants. Sure, but I mean cl- climate change produces wars. I th- I can't think. I don't think you can separate them in that such, in such an easy way because all these things are kind of mixed up together. Like the the whole generation identity, um, uh, great replacement theory. Uh, the conspiracy at its core is not that people are migrating. The conspiracy at the core is that this is a concerted effort to migrate, and 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 so it's really difficult to like split this split this kind of like thing apart into like in, and and, to, and break it down into what it's made up of because because it is so glommed together. And uh, yeah, anyway, sorry. I totally agree. I don't I don't think there are three different kinds of racism here, but I think it'd be interesting to think about what the um, climate changes we're going to see over the next kind of hundred years. What kinds of dynamics they are going to make more prominent in far right movements? Yeah, I think the separatism is the the main sort of tendency within right wing environmentalist quote unquote movements. Um, if nothing else, just because you can build separatism from any other theory. If you are a eugenics advocate, then it's best to have the people who you know, have the the best genes or whatever in one specific area so that they can all build, um, they can all breed together and that that can be a, a better livestock. And if you're a fan of the globalist Jewish conspiracy, anti-Semitic rubbish, then um, you can claim that it's necessary to have a haven from that and therefore each individual race requires a specific pen in which they can operate. And if you... Why Carl Schmidt thought that Jews that lived in Israel were much more preferable to Jews that lived anywhere else. So I think that because the separatism idea is so readily contortable, you can come up with any reason you want to decide that races need to be separated and that that needs to happen geographically and that you need to also draw the borderlines for where that can happen. Um, I think that's going to be the... I think, yeah, because it is so common, it will become the dominant force in the right and from the the eco-fascists that I've seen and read is always we don't hate them but we think that these people are less able than us to treat the land properly and therefore um if they just go over there then eventually their population will die off you have to be very ready to crush that kind of bullshit race separatist stuff otherwise pentilinkola and his can you please explain who perry pentilinkola pentilinkola yeah uh pentilinkola is a finnish environmentalist and writer and all-round misanthrope. Um, Ice fisher from the uh, North Finland landscape, where he now lives. Yeah, by choice. Yeah. He gave up his career of literary writing and and science, I think he was a biological scientist, um, and chose to become a fisher because being a fisherman is a more sustainable way of living and it's better for the environment and people won't find him when he writes awful racist polemics. Um, if he's out in a boat somewhere in Finland. He has this vision of like a a fortress Finland. So he explicitly claims that he isn't a white nationalist by any means. And I've seen other eco-fascists 
rally against, I guess, him and other eco-fascists and other other eco-fascists for being white nationalist and saying, this is wrong, you shouldn't be a white nationalist, you should be a Finnish nationalist, mm. which obviously hugely different. I guess like, one of the, kind of the strange things about environmentalism on the right is that it, or at least it seems to have in the past been married to some really parochial concerns. So like like a lot of the environmentalism in the UK has accidentally become like anti-littering campaigns. It's mm. utterly trivial, mm. right? Utter, utterly, utterly trivial. Um, in the same way as like, it, it, it's also things about uh, spoiling views um, by like ugly mining and this kind of thing. What this kind of shows, I think, is that people conceive of the environment very much in a, uh, a bounded way and not as a kind of global holistic thing. Mm, definitely. That, as far as I can tell, is kind of changing. So when Tucker Carlson talks about the environment, he mostly means like cleanliness, as far as I can tell, which is of course like racialized in his imaginary. But when people uh, who I think more committed systematic thinkers, who are nevertheless fascists on the right, when they think about the environment, I think they're beginning to think, this is the evidence that I'm getting from, for example, um, the discussions of eco-fascism that I'm seeing online, on HN and this kind of place, which I know is not a great like source, but is genuinely like a welter of new political thinking or new, uh, very old political thinking uh, dressed up in a kind of new flamboyant um, style. What they are beginning to think about is systemic ecology and what it means to like have or think about the whole of ecology. So I think it's, it's, it's necessary for us to not only ridicule their position, but also to critique in a quite precise way the science that undergirds it. Hmm. And one of the main pieces of science that undergirds it is the notion of a stable ecosystem. So here's the here's the fiction. The Earth was a stable ecosystem, um, and all the individual, say, like continents, or however you know, finely you want to grain that, all of those were also stable ecosystems, and they were all coherent, and they were all kind of stabilised. So a notion of a climax community, which comes from um, some now disproven 19th century botany, by a guy called Frederick Clemence. The, sto the story is that um, the Earth was stable, or any given ecosystem was stable, and because of the introduction of some, A, invasive species, or B, some sort of population dynamic, or C, some sort of like... Um, impurity arises in the ecosystem then it falls out of out of line out of kilter and then that's when you have a crisis and so it's very obvious that invasive species in this thinking is mapped very very closely onto a group of uh, uh, climate change refugees it's very obvious that also in this case the notion of a population increase is mapped onto kind of uh, uh, racist conceptions of childbirth and um, the possibility of like limiting pleasure and the third one about impurities is is also like kind of conspicuously racialized, but it's also worth noticing that this is nonsense science. That's just not how ecosystems develop. They just don't. They're not in stable positions, and they fall out of those positions. They're continuously changing, and although there is anthropomorphic climate change, and it is definitely pushing the current global system out of kilter, it's not that it was somehow pure and sacred and coherent before that particular point, before the industrial revolution. I think that's kind of a, an important piece of nonsense science to kind of debunk. And you also, you also see this like rhetorical blurring in, in things like in the early like social Darwinist movements and eugenic movements in which they took like pretty solid scientific theory actually with Darwin. Um, yeah, we believe time. in evolution on the podcast. So. <laughs> for its time. This is a big and, uh, evolution gang podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
and then applied it bizarrely to human civilization and cultures and races. But what's also interesting there is that there's also another piece of nonsense there. So like Nazi eugenics is a theory of Darwinism that is totally devoid of the main mechanism of Darwinism. So Darwinism is a theory of, of random variation and selection from variation. Whereas in Nazism, what we get is a is a theory of selection without variation. That the race there are there's no variation within races. They're just races, and now they need to be selected for. Although they might argue that there is very small genetic variances randomly between the children of a given race, and that these could be bred out. For example, uh, diseases and Down syndrome. Like I know, uh, Iceland aborts nearly every single, almost every single pregnancy where it's determined ahead of time that the child will have Down syndrome is, what the fuck? is terminated in Iceland yeah. uh, and not carried to term. Yeah. So... It's, it's policy. It's, <laughs> what the fuck, man? That's <laughs> it's, policy, it's policy across Europe. Yeah, it's like 80% in France or something, yeah. or 70%. It's possible. So there obviously isn't the same level of variation, but I think you can't say that there is no variation within a race. Uh races defined in whatever terms it's not a real thing you can define it however you like well i i, I wouldn't i wouldn't say that but yeah no, okay. i i, I no. agree with i agree with the kind of like correction to my like yeah conception yeah. of uh, how far it considers a race there's been a shift um amongst nationalisms not on the kind of uh, hard right not on the kind of fascist right but on the just right um towards um kind of modernist forms of nationalism in the topology of nationalist studies um recently so people identify with that cultural aspect of their nation etc etc rather than identifying with the kind of primordial occupants of the land do you think as climate change really starts to bright as climate migration increases are we going to see a shift in the far right back towards something like a primordialist position primordialism being the idea that um yeah there's a kind of an intimate relation between the people or the race and the land i think form of nationalism is almost not worth distinguishing. I think, so in the case of primordialist nationalism, where you return to, like you said, sort of a human connection, the very blood and soil idea, or ethno-symbolic nationalism, where we are the people of this country, or a modernist nationalism with some sort of futuristic vision of this is what, you know, this is the people now, and this is how the future, and we'll build it, and it will be this great nation. Um, it's all idealistic nationalism there is all always some ideal of purity and harmony um embedded within the nationalism and i think it's just the specific form of that nationalism depends on the current time the current zeitgeist it depends on what is currently seen as being attacked if people feel that um their people or their folk are being attacked by some other means whether that's you know the germans feeling uh, like they don't have enough living room and therefore need to expand and we need a german room for german people or it's now the earth is being attacked but it's our earth so we need to reclaim our earth for our people it's all i think the form of nationalism is almost a little bit of a, a moving target a little bit of a cloak that just hides the fact that this is some ideal that people want to return to and are willing to kill outsiders to maintain that bordered ideal. I think that there are different ways of um, producing that ideal. So there's, there's a way of producing that ideal that is basically about um, unified systems of values and there are ways of producing that ideal that are about biological uh, continuity. So people, I think, are losing a handle on the ability to think at the 
scale that is required for um, thinking about climate change, that it's not very good at thinking of that scale. And I'm not very good at thinking of that scale. And maybe even something like the flat earth movement, uh, a kind of complete like derangement of the sense of how the world is constituted, and a complete suspicion that something absolutely fundamental about the earth has gone wrong. The flat earth movement seems to me to be a kind of pathological uh, response to climate change. Maybe I'm totally, totally wrong about that, but that's my kind of reading of it. Um, are we likely to see the kind of conspiratorial wing of fascism increase, even while people accept maybe the reality of climate change? I think until everyone has read Marx, everyone will believe that there is some sort of extent <laughs> to which um, climate change can't be caused by the way society is set up. Climate change is, uh, well, it's, uh, it's actually because of this thing that I have secretly a long-running prejudice about, or it's actually because of this other thing um, that this other group of people have a long-running prejudice about whether that's uh, some sort of international Zionist conspiracy theory or whether it's sort of um, a sort of a racist conspiracy theory that obviously uh, anti-Semitism anti is as well. As long as the people being affected by climate change or at least being told that climate change exists don't have the free time to really think about climate change and they have to uh, be at work, they don't have, they have to... Um, maintain and feed for their families, feed themselves and maintain a roof over themselves. As long as the only information they're fed about climate change is that it is happening and that there are several sites which are doing the bad thing and that all those bad things happen to be in an area that isn't currently where uh, a lot of the theorizing is taking place, then um, there will always be the um, ability to abstract away and say, well, this is happening in another place and therefore it secretly fits in with my theory that it's all part of this big plot um, and we need to simply stop the Russians or we need to simply stop uh, specifically Norwegian people who are doing all of this um, because if you're not dealing with the day-to-day -day reality of it and you don't have time to synthesize a full theory of how things are happening and w what is happening and you, you haven't been offered the anti-capitalist critique of climate change you haven't been offered the environmentalism uh you haven't been offered the critique of environmentalist anti-capitalism uh, you haven't been offered uh alternatives importantly as well such as um socialism or uh, marxism or communism or anarchism or any of the other or primal anarchy um if you're kevin tucker on john zilson but yeah like it, as long as you haven't been offered genuine systematic critiques which take a long time to understand they're not simple things this I, this materialist view of the world isn't an easy thing to shift from if you're raised in a liberal world and an uh, sort of a conspiracy theory will always provide an easy answer so as long as people don't have this mass class consciousness which i don't ever think will happen then people will be provided with conspiracy theories and they will believe those conspiracy theories but it's which conspiracy theories will be the most successful in mobilizing people to take action against climate change and eventually as things worsen and worsen people will notice that the anti-capitalist critique of why climate change is happening is the only one that seems to be actually providing solutions the the rojavan freedom uh, movement is specifically anti-capitalist and is successful in being sustainable. It, it, to be successfully environmentalist and egalitarian requires the knowledge that 
people in the global north don't currently have because they're not currently being affected by climate change. So as long as that is the case, there will always be conspiracy theories as to why it's happening. And, and do you think that people only gain this, the, the, gain this anti-capitalist consciousness when they start getting really fucked over uh, in their, where they live? Or do you think... Do you think there is a way of like doing doing a lot of po- doing popular education about Marxism and systematic critiques of capitalism, um, in a way that would like spur people into the kind of the right kind of acting that you're talking about? Like right now, I, I feel like we don't really have the time to wait for it to get bad here for everyone to realise that suddenly they have to become a communist or whatever. I feel like the the, the important thing here is not Marxism. The important thing here is anti-colonialism. Like that's the real kind of like a. Uh, essential collection of thoughts that I think are really um, important for distinguishing between um, a left environmentalism and a right environmentalism. Okay, but that, that's also quite difficult to like teach to people who are like living in England, no? Yeah, yeah, sure. And also if you understand the roots of colonialism, you're halfway to understanding anti-capitalist critiques anyway, materialist anti-capitalist critiques. So I guess my question still stands is like, how do you teach that? I come from a more anarchist background. So maybe my personal view is that the most effective way to spread that sort of consciousness is to build movements yourself, is to go out there and start an organization and spike some trees or not spike some trees. Um, and It's a reference to a uh, tree spiking tactic, which is one of the ELF's uh, main tactics where they prevented loggers from logging things mm-hmm. um, by putting out a metal spike through the tree mm-hmm. so that it would break the chainsaw as the chainsaw tried to cut it down. It doesn't actually hurt the tree, it produces a kind of slight discoloration. Very sick. Yeah, that is uh, <laughs> that's proper cool, actually. Yeah, that's real cool. Um, Thanks for coming and doing the episode with us. Uh, it was a real pleasure to have you in. Are there any uh, gaff-related events coming up that you can people can look out for or should attend or engage with? Uh, I would suggest you check the Twitter account for Gaff for any upcoming surprise events or is- small events, which is at Front Green. Yeah, so the next um, Gaff event, or rather event that Gaff will be present at, is the Reclaim the Power event, which is a camp uh, based around environmentalism and uh, solidarity with migrants and direct action against new gas infrastructure, which is happening on the 26th of July to the 31st of July. Mm-hmm. And also a uh, quick shout out to the Earth First gathering, mm-hmm. which is happening in the north of England from the 14th of August to the 20th of August. Cool. Finally, if you like the show, you can please share it with your friends and tell people about it. Um, you can find us on Twitter at, at 12 rules for what We also have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash 12RulesForWhat. If you want to give us money, you can do it as little as two, $2 a month. We need some new chairs in the studio. And we need some new chairs in our studio. Thanks for listening. 12 Rules for What? 12 Rules for What?